Welcome to Just Thinking with hosts Dara Harrison and Virgil Walker, bringing you week-to-week cultural apologetics as well as social issues from a biblical worldview. This is Just Thinking. Let's think. And I am back. What's up, listeners? It's Daryl Harrison. I say I, normally say we, because normally I'm joined by my wingman, Omaha, a.k.a. Virgil Walker, the wingman from Omaha, Nebraska. We officially call him Omaha. That seems to be a nickname that's stuck. Uh, I just kind of threw that out there one night, and but man, it's like now the listeners kind of really uh, identify Virgil's Omaha, so I'm going to try to get uh, get used to calling my man by his call sign, if you will, hearkening back to the days of uh, Top Gun. But uh, welcome, welcome to the Just Thinking podcast. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be listening to this podcast from around the world. We appreciate you making time to join us. We do not take that for granted ever. We do um, value your prayers, your encouragement, your support of the podcast. We appreciate it. This is episode 37. Um, Last week's episode was on sexual immorality, episode 36. And we thank you for all your encouraging feedback on that heavy heavy topic. It was so heavy that we did an expanded episode of the podcast to tackle that issue. I think that episode was uh, in excess of 90 minutes. Uh, The topic we're going to be dealing with uh, in this episode, I I want to say tonight, because for those of you who may be new to the podcast, we record new episodes on Monday evenings at 8 Eastern time. So if you ever hear me say uh, make reference to tonight or this evening. It's, it's just kind of a habit because we record these episodes on Monday nights at eight. Uh, but the topic we're going to be dealing with in this episode of the Just Thinking podcast is on anger, another heavy topic. We're going to be talking about anger and how to deal with it biblically. Uh, more specifically, we're going to be talking about sinful anger because When you talk about anger, not all anger is sinful. Not all anger is sinful. And to help us sort of unpack this issue uh, for us, I'm going to be heavily leveraging a great book, a book I highly recommend if you have not yet read it. It is a book by Robert D. Jones. The title is Uprooting Anger. Uprooting Anger, Biblical Help for a Common Problem. That's Uprooting Anger, Biblical Help for a Common Problem by Robert D. Jones. So I'm going to be quoting passages from this book regularly during this episode. I uh, I came across this book in December of 2017. Um, I accompanied my pastor to the annual conference of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, the uh, ACBC for short. The uh, ACBC annual conference was held in Jacksonville, Florida. And if you've ever been to uh, a Christian conference of any size, uh, they usually have a bookstore set up. uh, And if you don't have a separate budget set aside for books, 
you could easily go broke. Uh, just say, you know, so so I go into the bookstore on a break and just great resources all over the place. And this is one of the resources that I came back home with was Robert Jones's book on uprooting anger. Uh, if you yourself are dealing with uh, anger issues or if you know someone who is, um, I commend this book to you uh, that you read through it alongside your Bible. Uh, and I believe you will find the book uh, edifying and encouraging as you deal uh, with that issue. So I just want to give a heads up to everyone that we will be leveraging uh, Jones's book, Uprooting Anger, heavily uh, tonight. So we're talking about this topic, topic just to give you some background. This topic was um, brought to us by request uh, after the episode we did last week, episode 36 on sexual immorality. Um, we had several people approach me either via social media, email, um, said, hey, I think a great topic for you guys to address will be anger. Um, normally, we don't take topic requests on the podcast because Omaha and I will get together behind the scenes as Monday approaches. And I may toss them a bone or two uh, as far as some ideas uh, that I've got floating around in my head as far as what we might want to do the next episode on. <clears throat> but we get requests for topics all the time. And we kind of have to parking lot those with the topics that he and I have already sort of teed up for consideration. But given that Virgil uh, is off taking care of some other priorities, uh, this week, he'll be back, Lord willing, next week for the episode that will be released on the 25th. Um, but for this episode, which will be released on the 18th, I'm still flying solo. Uh, so hopefully you guys are okay with that. But for topics that Virgin and I kind of get together with in background, um, again, for those of you who are new listeners to the uh, to the podcast, every single episode we do is unscripted. Totally unscripted. Even when Virgil and I are, are co-hosting together, uh, we don't share notes. Uh, I have no idea what con commentary he's going to add to the discussion. Likewise, he has no idea what commentary I'm going to add to the topic. The only thing we know mutually between ourselves is what topic we're going to talk about. Uh, so... Normally, though, as I was saying, we don't take topic requests, but this one, I felt, uh, given the number of uh, inquiries that we had and suggestions that we had for this issue, uh, I felt burdened to uh, go ahead and deal with this one right away. Uh, so my prayer is that as you listen to this episode, that, that there'll be at least a nugget or two of what you're going to hear tonight that you will find helpful and edifying and encouraging and uh, sanctifying for your walk uh, with the Lord uh, in this sinful world. Um, so let's dive into the topic. We're talking about anger. And as I alluded to earlier, we're going to be heavily referring to Robert Jones's book, Uprooting Anger, Biblical Help for a Common Problem. So let's begin here. Jones, uh, Jones says in his book, that anger is a universal problem 
prevalent in every culture, experienced by every generation. No one is isolated from its presence or immune from its poison. It permeates each person and spoils our most intimate relationships. Anger, Jones writes, is a given part of our fallen human fabric. Anger is a given part of our fallen human fabric. Hopefully you caught the early part of that quote from Robert Jones, where he writes that anger is poison. He says, no one is isolated from the presence of anger or immune from its poison. Anger is poison. And as we all know, the poison of anger has the capacity to kill. Poison has the capacity to kill. An example of that from scripture is in Genesis chapter four. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to apologize as I turn to Genesis four for sounding a little nasally last week. And I may still sound a little nasally this week. I'm, I'm getting over a sinus infection. So I want to apologize in advance and just ask your indulgence and patience if you happen to hear me clear my throat. Uh, I, I try to minimize that. I do have a glass of water next to me here. So I'll try to minimize those instances where I have to do that for, but any apologies uh, uh, go forward in advance for sounding nasally or, or congested here. I'm on the downside of this, but it's not totally, totally gone yet. Uh, so we're talking about how anger uh, as poison can kill. So let's look at the first account in scripture of someone who got angry. This will be in Genesis chapter four. The first account of human anger is in Genesis 4, where we have the account of the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. Uh, as always, I am reading from the NASB translation, the MacArthur NASB translation. Genesis chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. The man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of that of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry. That is the first occurrence of that word angry there in the scriptures in Genesis chapter four, verse five. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Of Genesis chapter 4, 
verses 1 through 7. Now, verse 5 states that Cain became very angry. That's verse 5 of Genesis 4, that Cain became very angry. Now, in the Hebrew, that phrase, became very angry, is the word kara. That word kara denotes a type of anger that is so incensed, so heated, it's so deep as to desire revenge. And, of course, that's exactly what Cain does. In spite of God's warning to him in Genesis 4, 7, in the very next verse, Genesis 4, 8, Cain goes out and murders his brother. So when it comes to anger, as Christians, we would all do well to heed the same warning that God gave to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. We would do well to heed the same warning. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. We would do very well to heed that warning. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now that word master is the Hebrew word mashal, which means to rule over or to exercise dominion over. Okay, now, Cross-reference Genesis 4-7 and God's command to Cain that he must master sin. And that same command goes to us that we must master sin. Cross-reference Genesis 4-7 with Romans 6-14 and the exhortation by the Apostle Paul there that sin shall not be master over you. So in Genesis 4-7, we have the admonition to be aware that sin's desire is for you, but you must master it. And Paul in Romans 6 says that sin shall not be master over you. Now, in Romans 6, it's interesting here that the Greek noun master is the word kiriueo, kiriueo. That word kiriueo has the same root prefix as the word Kurios, the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. So what Paul is saying here in Romans 6.14 is that sin shall not be Lord over you. It shall not have dominion or power or influence over you. Now, the way I like to think about these two verses in Genesis 4.7 and Romans 6.14 I like to think of them together as sort of a doctrinal sandwich, if you will, okay? Genesis 4-7, that sin is crouching at the door and its desires for you, Romans 6-14, that sin shall not be master over you. So when you put those two verses together, what God's word is saying here is that we must master our sin so that sin does not become our master. We must master our sin so that sin does not become our master. Now, in saying that, I'm reminded of the words of that great uh, Puritan theologian, John Owen. Many of you who are listening probably have read his book, The Mortification of Sin, that classic, probably the work that John Owen is most noted for. 
of all his awesome writings. <clears throat> the book, The Mortification of Sin, wherein Owen writes this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's Owens's way of saying what I just said. That when you consider Genesis 4-7 and Romans 6-14 together, God's word is saying that we must master sin so that sin does not become our master. Because if you don't kill sin, sin will become your master and every master needs a slave. Every master needs a slave. You would become the slave of sin if you don't master it. Now, there are countless Christians around the world who today, perhaps even some of you who are within the sound of my voice right now, who are being mastered by sin in one form or another. Perhaps that's you listening to this right now. You're mastered by some sin. Now, these masters, I put that in quotations, these masters, these sin masters, if you will, they kind of run the gamut from anger to pornography to alcoholism to jealousy, envy. The, the list goes on. It's an endless list. It goes on and on. Now, when you put Genesis 4-7 and Romans 6-14 together, it gives you kind of what I call a doctrinal sandwich. A doctrinal sandwich with regard to sin. And I describe that this way. This is the doctrinal sandwich. Genesis 4-7, consider Genesis 4-7 as one slice of bread. Okay. Romans 6-14 is the other slice of bread. And in the middle is your heart. So consider again, Genesis 4-7 and Romans 6-14 as a doctrinal sandwich as it relates to the doctrine of sin. Genesis 4-7 is one side of the bun. Romans 6-14 is the other side of the bun. But in the middle is your heart. Your heart. Listen to what Jeremiah 17-9 says. It says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked, desperately sick. Who can understand it? That is one of the most profound rhetorical questions that you will find in scripture. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Okay. A rhetorical question, as we know, is a question wherein the answer is intrinsic with the question. So in Jeremiah 17, 9, we have the rhetorical question of who can understand the heart? Well, the obvious answer is no one. Our hearts are so depraved, so darkened with sin that it is totally unpredictable. This is why when I see or I hear of an incident where a crime has been committed, where let's say, for instance, a 16-year-old murders his parents or some other egregious offense. This is why I'm not surprised when that happens because that's the kind of sinful nature we bear. That's the kind of sinful capacity 
each of us carries within us. But it says the old adage goes, there but by the grace of God go I. This is why you'll never hear me say, I will never do X. You'll never hear me say that. Because I know the depravity of my own heart. I know what I'm capable of if given the right circumstance, situation, and scenario. Daryl could, but by the grace of God, commit, you name it, all kinds of sin. Okay? So no one can understand the heart. Proverbs 4.23, we have a warning here, an admonition. The, psalm, the, the, proverb, the, the, the writer of Psalm 4.23 writes this, he says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Now we've heard that passage probably hundreds of times, if not thousands. But it's a passage we must take seriously. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it, from the heart, flow, for better or worse, the springs of life. Sinful anger is born in and proceeds from the heart. Sinful anger is born in and proceeds from the heart. Scripture supports that in Mark chapter 7. I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 7, verses 17 through 23. Just emphasizing here what the scriptures say about the capacity the sinful capacity of the human heart, not only in the outward evidence of anger, but the fact that the heart is a repository for the impetus, the attitude, the mindset that gives birth to the fruit of anger. Mark 17, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 7, verses 17 through 23. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man that is what defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So the heart, again, is deceitful, more deceitful than all else, Jeremiah writes, and is desperately sick. No one can understand it. Sinful anger, <clears throat> excuse me, sinful anger kills. Sinful anger kills. Sinful anger is a murderer. Sinful anger kills physically, it kills spiritually, it kills emotionally, 
It kills mentally, it kills relationally, it kills individually, it kills corporately. There's nothing that unrepentant sinful anger does not destroy. And again, I'm emphasizing sinful anger because not all anger is sinful. There is a righteous anger, but for purposes of this episode, we're focusing on sinful anger, okay? So again, to help us unpack and understand this topic, we're gonna be leveraging uh, Robert Jones's book, Uprooting Anger. <clears throat> Just to give you some background on Jones real quick, Jones holds a D-min from Westminster Theological Seminary. He serves as professor of biblical counseling at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And in his book, Jones gives us a definition. I think I'm a big advocate of when you're broaching an issue, whatever the topic or issue or subject matter may be, that it's important to define terms, okay? It's so very important to define terms because when you define terms, you can establish the context in which the conversational discussion is gonna take place. Um, I heard Dan Dumas say once, I believe Dan is still at Southern Seminary. I heard Dan Dumas say, say once at a men's conference I attended, at a former church to which I belong, uh, that the three most important things when you're studying the word of God are one, context, two, context, and three, context. And Brother Dumas is absolutely right. Uh, so context is huge. In order for, for us to get some context around the subject matter of sinful anger, um, I want to give you Jones's definition of anger in his book, Uprooting Anger. Jones defines anger as, quote, our whole personed, whole personed active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. Okay, the definition again, our whole personed active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil, perceived. Do not miss those words, active response and perceived evil, okay? Now, according to Jones, there are three types of anger. You've got the definition of anger. And according to Jones, anger manifests itself in three distinct types. Number one, there's divine anger. That's the anger that is expressed by a holy and righteous God toward evil and sin, injustice and unrighteousness. So there's divine anger. Secondly, there's human righteous anger, okay? Human righteous anger is the anger that's expressed by God's elect that imitates God's divine anger. That's very, very important to note. Human righteous anger mirrors God's divine anger. Okay. Thirdly, there's human sinful anger. Okay, so we have divine anger, human righteous anger, and we have human sinful anger. Now, human sinful anger, simply put, is that anger expressed by God's elect that doesn't imitate or mirror God's divine anger. Human sinful anger is where we want to focus this conversation on this episode of the 
Just Think the Podcast. Now, um, Jones notes this you know, on page 29 of his book. He, he, he outlines three criteria of righteous anger. Three criteria of righteous anger. And I want to just kind of hit those at a high level. Okay, three criteria of righteous anger, according to Robert Jones. Number one, righteous anger reacts against actual sin. That is so important. Actual sin. Okay, righteous anger is not getting your feelings hurt or getting angry because somebody disappointed you or you didn't get your way. Righteous anger is a reaction against actual sin. That is, sin as God objectively defines it in his word. Jones says this, he says, righteous anger arises from an accurate perception of true evil, from sin as defined biblically as a violation of God's word. It responds to sin as objectively defined by God's word, including violations of both our Lord's great commandments, which are in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. Let's read that real quick. Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. Um, And as I turn there, I want to just say a quick note of appreciation for our listeners who have let me know that they enjoy hearing me turn the pages of my Bible Um, As we record these episodes, Matthew 26, I'm sorry, Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So again, three criteria of righteous anger according to Jones. Number one, righteous anger reacts against actual sin, okay? Not perceived evil. Number two, righteous anger focuses on God and his kingdom, rights, and concerns, not on me and my kingdom rights and concerns. Okay, let me repeat that. The second criteria of righteous anger, according to Robert Jones, righteous anger focuses on God and his kingdom rights and concerns, not on me and my kingdom rights and concerns. Jones expands on this by saying in scripture, God-centered motives, not self-centered motives, drive righteous anger. Righteous anger focuses on how people offend God and his name, not me and my name. It terminates on God more than me. In other words, accurately viewing something as offensive is not enough. We must view it primarily as offending God. Righteous anger throbs with kingdom concerns. Righteous anger throbs with kingdom concerns, okay? So the first criteria, righteous anger reacts against actual sin. Number two, righteous anger focuses on God and his kingdom, rights, 
and concerns, not on me and my kingdom rights and concerns. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then third, lastly, righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. Righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. Jones expands on this by saying, righteous anger remains self-controlled. It keeps its head without cursing, screaming, raging, or flying off the handle. Nor does it spiral down in self-pity or despair. It does not ignore people, snub people, or withdraw from people. Instead, righteous anger carries with it the twin qualities of confidence and self-control. Christ-like anger is not all-consuming and myopic, but channeled to sober, earnest ends. Godly strains of mourning, comfort, joy, praise, and action balance it. Rather than keeping us from carrying out God's call, righteous anger leads to godly expressions of worship, ministry, and obedience. It shows concern for the well-being of others. It rises in defense of oppressed people. It seeks justice for victims. It rebukes transgressors. Godly anger confronts evil and calls for repentance and restoration. Okay? Godly anger confronts evil and calls for repentance and restoration. So there you have the three criteria of righteous anger. Now, if the anger you're dealing with is outside of those three criteria, then your anger is simple. Your anger is simple. Consider uh, these uh, questions that are posed by David Pallison. David Pallison, whom you may or may not be familiar with, he's an author, Christian author and Christian uh, counselor, a biblical counselor. <clears throat> In the book Uprooting Anger on page 30, Robert Jones um, lists seven questions that David Pallison poses to someone to help them assess whether or not their anger is righteous. Okay, listen carefully to these seven questions and you decide honestly, if you are one who has an ongoing issue with sinful, unrighteous anger, listen to these questions and do an assessment of yourself, do an assessment of your own heart. And answer honestly. If you're going to, if you're, if you're, if you're not willing to answer honestly about your anger, then you'll never be helped. You're going to stay in that rut. You're going to stay in that that cavern of anger, of sinful anger, and we don't want that for you. Listen to these seven questions that David Pallison uh, asked to help someone assess whether his or her anger is righteous, okay? Question number one, do you get angry about the right things? Now, I'm gonna put right things in quote, in quotes. Harken back now to criteria number one that we just reviewed in, de in determining what right things means, okay? 
Criteria number one for righteous anger was that righteous anger reacts against actual sin. Okay? Not perceived, not felt sins. Okay? Actual sins. So question one, do you get angry about the right things? Question two, do you express your anger in the right way? Okay? Do you express your anger in the right way? Question three, how long does your anger last? Do you, in disobedience to what the scripture teaches or commands us, do you let the sun go down on your anger? Or perhaps a better question is, do you let several suns go down on your anger? Do you make, when you get angry, do you make people pay? For your anger? Do you make others pay for it before you finally decide to move on? Does your forgiveness cost? Does your forgiveness have a price tag on it? Now, in saying that, I want to just say something as an aside. You know, we, we say phrases like, <clears throat> excuse me, we say things like, well, he or she makes me angry. They just make me mad. Well, let me just correct that in all humility. I say this in the spirit of Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. No one makes us angry. No one makes us angry, ever. I don't care what the situation is, what the scenario is. No one makes us angry. To say that someone makes us angry is to basically acknowledge that there's a force from outside yourself that is more powerful than the self-control that you could wield in that situation that just sort of overrides you to where you can't help but yield to that urge to get angry. You just can't help but respond in anger. But that's not the case. We choose to get angry. We choose... Every sinful expression that we exhibit is a choice. It's a choice. So no one makes us angry. No one gets us angry. We get ourselves angry, okay? We get ourselves angry. So I encourage you to, if that's a crutch that you've been using, to deal with your anger, to toss that crutch away. No one makes us angry. We choose, we choose anger. Again, so question three was how long does your anger last? You let several suns, maybe several suns and moons go down on your anger. Question four, how controlled is your anger? How controlled is it? If at all. Question five, what motivates your anger? And see, now, now, see, now we're, now we're stepping on some toes. What motivates your anger? Why do you get angry? Why do you get angry? What motivates your anger? Why do you get angry? What is it? What is the root? Well, we know the root cause. The root cause is sin. We've been talking about that 
for most of this episode. But beyond that, what is it within your heart that motivates you to get angry? That is a fundamental question. Question six, is your anger primed and ready to respond to another person's habitual sins? Is your anger primed and ready to respond to another person's habitual sins? In other words, is there someone in your life who is dealing with a uh, maybe a, 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 a habitual sins, as the question said, a habitual repeated sin? Maybe there's a, I don't know if it's a habit or a weakness in their maturity, but whatever the case may be, is there someone in your life whose habitual sins you 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 your anger is just set on ready and you just ready to go off every time that person exhibits or demonstrates in your presence that habitual sin are you just ready to go off is your is your anger trigger is your anger finger on the trigger question 7 what is the effect of your anger on yourself and others. What is the effect of your anger? So again, just to review these seven questions quickly, do you get angry about the right things? Do you express your anger in the right way? How long does your anger last? How controlled is your anger? What motivates your anger? Is your anger primed and ready to respond to another person's habitual sins? And then what is the effect of your anger? <clears throat> Excuse me. So again, reading from Robert Jones's book, Uprooting Anger. Okay, now there's a section in Jones's book here on page 39 under the heading, Assessing Our Own Anger. Assessing Our Own Anger. Now, due to time constraints, we will not be able to do an exhaustive uh, study, uh, you know, of this issue from a biblical standpoint, uh, we're flying at that sort of a 50,000 foot level um, on this issue. Uh, but again, I encourage you to get Robert Jones's book, Uprooting Anger, if you want to do a deep uh, study into this issue. But under the heading, Assessing Our Own Anger, again, Jones reiterates that there are three criteria that mark righteous anger. Number one, it reacts to actual sin. Number two, it focuses on God and his concerns, not me and my concerns. And then thirdly, it coexists with other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. <clears throat> but Jones goes, on to, Jones goes on to write this. He says, we must expose our pseudo-righteous anger. This requires repenting not only of the anger itself, which we, dis which we have discovered to have been sinful anger, but also our self-deceived justification of it in the name of righteous anger. See, we're stepping on toes again. Jones says this requires repenting not only of the anger itself, but also of our self-deceived justification of it in the name of sinful anger. He says the facade falls away when we carefully place our anger before the mirror of these three biblical criteria. Scripture exposes our anger as sinful. 
He says, but this invites fresh opportunities to repent and believe and to draw near to God and to more accurately know Christ and ourselves. He says, consider times, for instance, for those of you who are married, Jones writes this, he says, consider times when your spouse offends you. In the name of righteous anger, quote unquote, do you ever rail against him or her? Do you ignore or withdraw from your spouse? Do you spiral downward in self-pity? Do his or her offenses consume your mind? Do you cancel your plans for that evening or suspend your service for Christ that weekend? Or do you simply kick the dog or the door? If so, your anger is not Christ-like. If you do any of those things, your anger is not Christ-like. Jones writes that the sinful heart seeks to please itself more than to please God. It craves its own kingdom, not God's. Sinful anger craves its own kingdom, not God's. Okay? Jones writes that the heart of all sin, including sinful anger, is the human heart. And we've touched on that earlier in this episode, but it bears repeating. Anger, sinful anger is a matter of the heart. And what are you doing? What disciplines do you have in place in your own life to keep your heart clean before God? To keep your heart clean before God. Jones writes that the sinful anger arises from the sinful beliefs and motives that reign in the unbeliever and remain in the Christian. Okay? That sort of harkens back to what we talked about earlier with that doctrinal sandwich of sin. Where in Genesis 4, you must master sin. Romans 6, sin shall not be master over you. But Jones writes that in the unbeliever, sinful anger reigns. But in the believer, it remains. So sinful sin remains in the believer, and as a result, sinful anger remains, but it must not reign. If you are a believer, sinful anger must not reign. In your heart, it must not rain. Again, we read earlier Proverbs 4, 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Jones writes that to change anger in your heart, you must recognize and uproot. This is why the book is titled Uprooting Anger. Every sin, I'm not, I'm not quoting uh, Jones here. I'll get back to him in just a second. Every sin that you are aware of in your life must be rooted, must be dealt with at the root. It must be dealt with at the root. Not just as it relates to the effect of the sin, but the cause of it. As we were talking about just a second ago, what motivates you to get angry? If anger is is a problem in your life, you need to deal with God on what it is that motivates you to get angry. Back to Jones, he says, to change anger in your heart, 
you must recognize and uproot your sinful beliefs and motives and replace them with godly ones. I want to repeat that. To change anger in your heart, you must recognize and uproot your sinful beliefs and motives and replace them with godly ones. Godly change, Jones writes, must occur in the beliefs and motives that underlie our responses. This is so true. Your responses, our responses in life to situations, especially situations where others commit actual sins against us, our responses in those moments testify to what we believe. They testify to what we believe. Every sin in the very moment that we commit the sin is an act of unbelief. It's an act of distrust of God. Jones says again, godly change must occur in the beliefs and motives that underlie our responses. Jones says that sinful sinful anger has battered and bruised many parts of Christ's body. As someone has noted, quote, the bride's dress is torn, unquote. So again, we talked about early on in the episode how sinful anger kills. Sinful anger can kill a church. Perhaps you're even Perhaps you can speak from experience of a church that either dissolved or split because of anger. Anger destroys. Sinful anger destroys. As I said earlier, sinful anger is a murderer. It kills. It kills. Jones on page 54 of his book, asks the question, is your desire ruling you? Again, so we're talking about motives for anger, okay? We're talking about motives. He says here that a good desire becomes inordinate when you are willing to sin to get it. A good desire becomes inordinate when you are willing to sin to get it. So he further asks this. He says, do you manipulate others to get the result you want? Do you cry to elicit sympathy or explode to make people fear you? In other words, do you try to manipulate people? Most people who are dealing with sinful anger are dealing with it from the standpoint of not getting their way. It's pretty much that simple. They don't get their way. They have an expectation of someone. And that expectation is not being met for whatever reason. And they get angry. Because that person hasn't served them. Jones points out in his book that the vast majority of anger we commit as Christians is sinful anger. It's not righteous anger. It's sinful anger. It's not righteous anger at all. 
Jones says that anger arises from hearts that are ruled by something other than Jesus Christ. We get angry when we don't get what we deeply want. This is even true and deceptively so when what we want is not inherently bad. I love this part. Jones nails it here. He says anger arises from hearts that are ruled by something other than Jesus Christ. In other words, something other than the Lord Jesus Christ is your master. Bringing us back to how important it is that sin not make itself Lord over your life. And I want to read that a third time because it was so good. Anger arises from hearts that are ruled by something other than Jesus Christ. As we close here, because we're coming up on time, I want to, again, commend the book, Uprooting Anger by Robert Jones to you. I commend that book to you as an augment, not a substitute for reading God's word and studying what God's word says about anger, sinful anger in specific. If this is an issue in your life and you're a believer, you can have success in dealing with this issue. Go to the Lord with it. Go to the Lord with it. He can give you victory over this issue in your life. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast. We hope you will join us again next week for my roommate Omaha. We'll be back at my side. Y'all take care. Thank you for tuning in to Just Thinking, a podcast brought to you by the Bar Podcast Network. You can find all of Just Thinking episodes at www.thebarpodcast.com. Tune in next week to another edition of Just Thinking. And remember, let's think.